Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for this opportunity, for this fellowship, and for the chance to be in your word. Father, may your grace be poured out on me as a teacher and on everyone who may hear these words in the course of this teaching. Father, you have purposed to move hearts through the preaching of your word, through the mystery that it is that one man's mouth can be useful to you in that way. We don't pretend, Father, to understand how that happens, except that we know it is by your spirit and according to your will. And we rely on that. We rely on the the mystery, Father, of the power of the word of God to change hearts. Let that be first in our own heart. And then as we have opportunity, Father, may what we learn be useful so that we may turn hearts of those we know according to your power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're studying the book of Hebrews, and as the title suggests, this letter has a very Jewish focus. I don't see too many Orthodox Jews in the room, or if you are, you're hiding it very well. So that means we have to study a little of not only the book itself, of course, but also some of the circumstances and culture and times in which it was written. And I don't want to fool you into thinking that this letter doesn't have something to say to you and I as a Gentile New Testament believer Because though this writer may have been concerned with thinking and with behaviors that were unique to a Jewish mindset in his day, we're going to see that there's a number of parallels throughout the letter to our own way of thinking and our own behavior today, to our own mistakes, to our own challenges. And because the writer tackles this from a Jewish point of view, from a Jewish perspective, it makes study of this letter particularly challenging for Western Gentile Christians like you and I. And my job as I go through this letter with you is to help decode some of the Jewishness of this letter so that we can understand it properly in our own day. And it's for that same reason that this letter is so rewarding for you and I as we study it, because it requires that we raise our game a little bit as students, as men and women who want to divide the word of God rightly. If we're going to interpret this book properly, we have to really be good at interpretation, at paying attention to detail, at study. Ironically, the central message of this letter is one of spiritual maturity, that knowing the truth fully is a requirement and living it out is a call. Living up to the demands of faith is an expectation. So it's ironic when you consider that it requires a certain degree of spiritual maturity just to interpret this letter correctly, which addresses the issues of spiritual maturity. This will be probably the third or fourth time I can think of that I've taught this letter to an audience. And in my own experience teaching this letter over that time, I have found that the message of the letter mirrors my own experiences in teaching it, in a sense, because I've changed my perspective on a couple of points in this letter, on some places in the letter. I've come to believe it says something differently now than I thought it did at one time in the past. I've come to what I believe is a new and better understanding of it, as the Spirit has permitted me to, as a Bible student maturing in my own understanding. So you could say that my teaching of this letter mirrors the message of the letter. That is, we have to pay closer attention to what has been revealed in Christ. We have to press on to maturity. We have to leave behind old thinking. We have to seek to please the Lord. And in this teaching, I endeavor to hit all of those goals, God willing. But I also want to be mindful of something that is also a temptation for anyone who teaches this book or this letter. And that is you can get so enamored in some of the finer points and some of the debates and the disagreements over language and the like that you can miss the forest for the trees, as the saying goes. 
I could best illustrate this by a story I remember of a time when two pastors went camping together. And when they reached their campsite, they set up camp, they turned in for the night. And in the early morning hours, the first pastor woke up to see a night sky filled with the stars of heaven. And he quickly wakes up the second pastor and he says, look up in the sky, tell me what you see. The second pastor rubs his eyes, you know, wakes up, peers into the night sky, and he says, I see millions and millions of stars. And the first pastor says, yes, I know, but what does that tell you? And the second pastor thought for a moment, and he said, well, it it means God's infinite power created millions of galaxies, potentially billions of planets, which tells me God is great. And that we are small and insignificant by comparison. But it speaks to the grace of God that he would concern himself with us in the midst of all of this glory. And then the second pastor goes back to the first and he says, well, what does it tell you? And the first pastor says, someone stole our tent. (laughs) So sometimes you can look beyond the obvious and search too deeply for things that are right there on the page. I'm not going to do that, hopefully, in the course of this study. All right, so as, as we start this study, and like any time you start a new study in an epistle out of the New Testament, a, a New Testament letter, it, it's good to get your bearings as you start the study. And by that I mean we need to understand a bit about the writer, a bit about his audience, and a bit about the times and the circumstances in which he wrote the letter. And as we start this examination of background, we're immediately faced with one of the more intriguing mysteries of this letter, and that is who wrote this thing. This is the only book in the New Testament, and one of only a handful in the whole Bible, in which the authorship is unknown. We don't know who wrote it. As a result of that mystery, there's a long-standing debate in the church. But as early as 255 A.D., just a couple hundred years after the founding of the church, church leaders concluded that the author of Hebrews was unknown. So it didn't take very long before the authorship was a mystery. Some would speculate it's Paul. Some have said it's Barnabas. Some have said it's Luke. There's been other names mentioned over the course of history. From the period of 400 A.D. until 1600 A.D., which is really the height of the Roman church, they declared it to be the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. And there are some good reasons to think it may have been Paul. The writer, as you're going to see, has a really firm grasp of Old Testament theology and how that pictures Christ. He has an in-depth understanding of Jewish culture. He understands the sacrificial system, the law, the prophets, the Old Testament scripture, and so on. And elements of the letter sound like Paul. The closing mentions Timothy, who was a protege of Paul. But... Honestly, those are about the only reasons to think it's Paul. And there are, despite the Catholic's perspective on this, there are a lot more reasons to think it's not Paul. First, the writing style is very different from anything Paul writes elsewhere in the New Testament. There are a large number of Greek words in this letter that don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, including in Paul's letters. Uh, Many of Paul's characteristic phrases are missing. He likes to introduce Old Testament scripture by saying, as it is written, but that never appears in this letter. It's missing Paul's typical introduction, his typical prayers for the readers, benedictions, all of the things that we come to associate with Paul's letters. None of them are here. So if this is written by Paul, then he would have had to have had a vocabulary and style transplant before he took on the writing of this letter. And it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to think he would have been fundamentally a different writer now than he was in any of his other letters. So it's very unlikely that it was Paul. A clue to the authorship, though, can be found in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 3, The writer refers to himself as someone who has not personally encountered Christ, which would rule out Paul. But that would also rule out all the other apostles. Apostles, as an office, were men who were appointed by the Lord personally. 
And all scripture must be authored directly or indirectly by apostles, according to the way we establish the canon. And yet this author says he received the gospel handed down from others in chapter two, verse three, not from the Lord personally. Now, the early church fathers accepted this letter as scripture, which means they had some reason to believe that the content was authored under apostolic authority. But if the author himself never encountered the Lord, then how could this be possible? Well, the way it could be possible is this author may have accompanied an apostle, much like Luke shadowed Paul and Mark shadowed Peter in those apostles' ministries. And if so, then the content would have come from an apostle, from his testimony and teaching, but the writing was done by someone else in the presence of that apostle. That's why we accept Luke's writing as apostolic, though Luke was not an apostle. He was writing with Paul's authority. Paul was teaching and Luke was writing. Perhaps the author shadowed Paul. Perhaps this is someone else, either Luke or someone else, which would account for the similarities in theology with Paul and yet the difference in writing style from Paul. In the end, after all of that is said, the proper conclusion is to respect the Lord's decision in his choice to obscure the authorship of this letter by not naming anyone. I think it's actually a bad practice for Christians to pick a name and start using it, saying this is Paul's letter or this is Barnabas's letter, whatever someone may choose, because you can't be sure. And you're actually taking upon yourself the right to make a decision God has already decided should not be known. And so we leave it at that. You'll hear me refer to this as the author and nothing more. Moving from author to audience, things become a lot more clear when we think about who this was written to. The audience for this letter was Hellenistic Jews. That's not a bad word. Hellenistic means of a Greek culture. The Hellenistic believers in Jewish churches located outside the city of Jerusalem in an area called the Diaspora, which just means the ten cities. In the first 40 years of the church, first 40 years after Christ's death, the church body consisted largely of Jews. Jews who become believers in Messiah, in Christ. But within that Jewish body of believers in the church, you could find two groups, two different groups of Jewish believers. First, you have the original Jewish believers, those who came to faith in Jerusalem at Pentecost and afterward. We call them Palestinian Jews because they were living in present day Israel or Palestine, as it was called in Roman day. The church made up of Palestinian Jews, was largely poor. We hear that in Romans and again in 1 Corinthians. They followed traditional religious experience. They were the traditional conservative wing, if you will. They used the Hebrew scriptures. They didn't rely on the Greek translation we call the Septuagint. They were taught and discipled largely by some of the original 12, James, Peter, other key apostles that followed Christ. So they were fairly traditional, well-taught, though poor. Then you have the second group of Jews, which are Hellenistic. The Hellenistic Jews were the believers who came later. They were the ones that were reached by people like Paul and others. They were scattered in the Diaspora, which is a region of ten Greek cities outside of Palestine, in Asia Minor and elsewhere. They were typically more liberal in their views and in their practices. They liked to integrate into Greek culture and think themselves more Greek than Jewish. They spoke and read Greek. They preferred the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They were taught indirectly by apostles through the letters or through visits like when Paul would travel, etc. But they were also heavily influenced by false teachers, men who came in alongside Paul and others, Judaizers and the like, who tried to disrupt what Paul was doing and teach that the law was still in effect and that believers required to be Jew before they could be Christian and so on. Like the letters of Peter, James and Jude, 
The letter to the Hebrews was written to the Hellenistic group within this dichotomy, to those who were living outside Palestine, who needed correction, who needed to be guided because of the negative influences they experienced through the Greek culture and from these false teachers. And when they wrote to the Hellenistic Jews, when all of these letters, and we call these typically the Jewish epistles, that is Peter, James, Jude, and Hebrews. When you see these letters written, you'll notice themes emerging in every one of those letters, similar themes, disputing Jewish folklore, disputing Jewish myth, reorienting their view of Jewish history and Jewish scripture, contending with simplistic assumptions about God, reminding them of the serious nature of their own salvation, reminding them of a coming judgment for the believer. These are themes that come up repeatedly in the Jewish epistles. In many ways, then, this letter is a response to the same kind of spiritual immaturity that runs rampant in the Western church today. Though this was written 2,000 years ago to Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic Jews did many things and believed many things that are still prevalent even in the Western church today. For example, the Hellenistic Jews placed a very inappropriate and unhealthy emphasis on myth and supernatural folklore, uh, in particular angels, in the case of this letter. You'll see that in this letter. But then again, a lot of Christians are doing that again today, including particularly with angels, as it turns out. And the writer of this letter worries in some parts of the letter that the church assembly in his day had heard the gospel, but they hadn't actually embraced it. In other words, they hadn't believed it. They knew of it in a superficial sense, but it hadn't reached the heart. And I think today many unbelievers congregate with believers in churches, thinking that because they attend in the building, that makes them part of the club. But the truth of the gospel hasn't come in. This writer is going to highlight dangers of giving into temptation to sin, of choosing to live an unsanctified life as a believer. And today, sinful lifestyles are becoming the norm in some circles of the church. In fact, many of our brothers and sisters, I think, spend more time rationalizing that their fleshly desires are somehow okay with their Christian faith than actually submitting to the authority of God's word and to his spirit and choosing to live outside the flesh and in the spirit. And then lastly, this writer is going to warn believers not to live in a perpetual state of spiritual immaturity, oblivious to the fact that there is a coming judgment in which all of their decisions and all of their choices will get laid out in front of Christ for a reward or the lack thereof. They didn't realize that. They weren't living like that. And so many of our brothers and sisters today have exactly that same problem. They are entrapped by cares and pleasures and worries and riches of life. And as a result, they're ill-prepared to meet the Lord on the day of their judgment. So while it may sound like a letter written to a very strange group a very long time ago, it's the word of God. It is ever present and living sharper than any two edged sword, as the writer will tell us. And as such, it says an awful lot about exactly what we face every day. We need to set aside myths. We need to set aside immature thinking. We need to avoid sin. We need to know the demands of faith and be mindful of our judgment. That's what the book is about. Lastly, a little understanding on the timing and the circumstances of this letter is very helpful, I think. Based on what we read in the letter, it was probably written in the period of time between 66 and 69 A.D., and in particular those four years. That four-year period is important because it's the period in history in which the city of Jerusalem was in rebellion to Roman authority. In 66 A.D., the city of Jerusalem and the Jews in that city had kicked the Romans out and had decided they were no longer going to be subjected to Roman rule. They had used the wall of the city to protect themselves. And, of course, 
the Roman authorities didn't like that. They sent an army to try to put down the rebellion. And at first, in AD 66, they sieged the city, they surrounded it, but they couldn't break through the walls, at least not initially. Now, while the battle raged on the outside of the walls, the Jewish temple inside the city was still standing and still operating, and sacrifices were taking place daily. But to anyone who understood the words of Christ, as recorded in Matthew 24, that is, that the city and the temple were due to be destroyed soon after Christ's death as a judgment for Israel in rejecting their Messiah. For anyone who had the eyes to see that and ears to understand it, they knew that as the city was being sieged by the Roman authorities, that time was not on Israel's side. And then within a very short period of time, the city would be captured and plundered and the temple would be destroyed. And in fact, in A.D. 70, that did happen. In A.D. 70, the city was overrun and the temple completely destroyed. Now, in the letter, the writer refers to the temple and to the sacrificial system as still operating. And so we know he could not have written this later than A.D. 69. But he also says these institutions were obviously growing old and soon to disappear. Well, you'd have no reason to say that in the sense of the physical realm, except that you might see the end coming because of the turmoil around the city and the Romans trying to breach the walls and all the rest. It makes sense then to conclude that this writer was writing to the Jews outside of Jerusalem in the diaspora, he himself perhaps being outside the city, watching these events, knowing what they meant, and drawing upon them to make a point that the old was giving way to the new and that soon even the ability to carry out the sacrificial system would be lost, would be gone, as God had intended. And after the destruction, then the persecution against Jews and Christians intensified. The Roman emperor Nero, later Titus, he went after believers with a great vengeance. And you also get a sense as you read this letter that the writer knew that bad times were soon to come, Many Christians were going to lose their lives. And of course, to be absent the body is to be present the Lord. And then comes judgment. And so in his writing, he conveys this sense of urgency that the temple is soon to be destroyed. Many lives are soon to be lost. We need to be considering what it means when we face our Lord on that day. So the circumstances of the letter echo the circumstances of the day. But they also reflect our circumstances today. I find it, again, interesting how much of this is paralleling our own world today. We don't have... Uh, a temple, we're not worried about our cities being destroyed, we're in, perhaps we're not being persecuted yet at the hands of our government. But you can see signs that the end is coming, that the age is drawing to a close, that the Lord's return is imminent. And in the midst of those signs, we need to be thinking about what it means to come to judgment. We need to be sure that we're not distracted by our sin and the world's desires. We need to be striving for maturity, using every bit of the time that remains. Well, there's a lot of that to come, but we're just at the beginning. So let's start with the beautiful opening of this letter. We're going to read the first three verses as we study today. Chapter 1, verse 1. The writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And I know the verse continues, but we're going to pause it there. These opening verses, they present the writer's primary purpose in writing, in taking up the pen and writing this letter. And it also reveals his plan for how he's going to structure his arguments through the entirety of the letter. 
The theme is the superiority of Christ. God has worked in a lot of ways. He's used a lot of people. He's said a lot of things. But everything God has done culminates in his son, in Christ. And then, if that's the message, what's the plan? What's the the manner in which he's going to make his arguments? Well, he's going to make his arguments using contrast. Y'all remember in English class when our teacher would give you an assignment and it was draw a contrast or make a comparison and you always got the two confused. What's the, what's the difference between comparison and contrast? Well, you probably remember. A contrast is when you're looking for differences versus a comparison is when you're looking for similarities. This is a letter of contrast. From front to back, this is a letter drawing contrast between old and new, between what God has done in the past and what God is now doing through his son. So throughout the letter, he's going to draw this contrast. Now, his point is not to diminish the past. He's trying to elevate Christ above anything else that's been done in the past. So while the old things were good, the new things are better. That's the contrast. And so this letter is examining Christ's preeminence. And his preeminence demands our complete attention and our exclusive devotion. The old must give way to the new. You don't work the old and the new together. They don't combine except in the sense that the old leads us to the new. Remember the parable Jesus taught about old wineskins and new wineskins. You don't take old wineskins and put new wine in them. The parable is teaching about the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. When God brought Christ into the world and fulfilled his promise in the new covenant, he did not ask us to take the old covenant and sandwich it on top of the new and somehow find a way to put them together. He says the old gave way to the new. Fulfillment is found in the new. And so the writer's plan of attack for a Jewish audience is to say, you know the old, you've practiced the old, you've been taught the old. Now look at how it's fulfilled in Christ so that you can accept the new in its place. So let's look at the initial contrast. The writer contrasts here the way God delivered revelation to his people in days past to the way he is now revealing himself to us through Christ. First, notice God spoke in the past. Spoke. Our God is a God of the spoken word. He's not a silent God. He's not the God like the one that men create in their own hands, mute idols who cannot speak. Our God speaks. He brings himself to us. He's chosen to make himself known to his creation by speaking. He's not satisfied to be found by what you can see in the creation, by what has been made. Though, of course, Paul says that all things testify to his existence, but he wasn't satisfied with that. And he wasn't content to make his revelation known merely through writing, like we would discover it as we walked into some cave somewhere and we see it written on the side of the cave. He has gone to the point of speaking, of revealing himself to men through a spoken word, first to the fathers, we're told, which refers to men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even before them, Noah, and so on, but then later to the prophets. Our God is not silent. He will make himself known. And that knowledge comes, the writer says, in various times, in through various people, and in various portions as the Lord chooses. You can understand these words very simply. A portion just means parts. And literally in Greek, it's the word for part. So no one father, no one prophet received the entire revelation that God was prepared to share with men in the spoken word. Men like Abraham received one part. Men like Isaiah received another part. One received it in a dream in different ways. One received it in a dream like Joseph. One receives it in a burning bush like Moses. God used multiple means and he gave multiple portions. One got a lot, like a minor prophet. One gets a lot more, like a major prophet. But none of them heard it all. 
No one man in past days could ever have said they had the full story. Yes, the stories were being written down and they were being shared so that later men might know what earlier men received. But that didn't suffice. There was still more to come and they didn't have that piece. Each of these men were stepping along a path that God orchestrated, building with each step. That's why we say the word of God is revealed progressively. It's not that what Abraham received contradicted what Noah received. Or that what Isaiah received changed what Abraham received. But each added to what was given. Each illuminated the past in a new and better way. Each was leading somewhere like a path. And in the books of the Bible we see that. Exodus depends on Genesis. First and second Samuel depends on Judges. Daniel depends on Jeremiah. God's word is progressive. That's why the books in the canon are not organized chronologically according to how they are written. Because that's not how they were intended to be understood. They're ordered according to the progressive revelation of God. Uh, Job, for example, Job is probably the first book ever penned, ever actually written down was Job. But Job is in the middle of the Bible because the revelation that Job provides depends on the revelation that came before it in the books that are ordered earlier in the canon. So each revelation God provided to whomever he provided it, however he provided it, was part of a progressive knowledge building. But that just begs a question. If you're on a path, you have a destination. If there's a building process, it's leading to some final construction. What what is it we're building toward? Where are they all leading? And the writer tells us here in verse 2 that as we enter the last days, everything that was given is fulfilled or completed in his son, in Christ. Past revelations came by way of a father or a prophet. Past revelations came in part. But all of that speaking was talking about Christ and leading to Christ. And now in these days, the source of our revelation and the subject of that revelation have come together in the sun. The writer calls this time the last days. What he's saying is we've received now the full measure of God's revelation. We're on the last stone. In that stepping path, there's no more stones left. There will be no one else who will come with another portion. Abraham could not be said to have lived in the last days because after Abraham, there were more stones, so to speak. There were more steps of revelation coming. That same could be said for Moses and the prophets. They knew they were not in the last days. Later in this letter, the writer will say those men looked forward to our day because they knew there was a day to come in which the final revelation would be made in Christ. We, on the other hand, can say we're in the last days. We've reached the pinnacle of of revelation. All of God's word is complete. There is no more revelation to come. So if a Joseph Smith or one of his proxies shows up at your front door, or if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your front door, or some other cult leader comes down the road claiming to have something new from God, some additional stepping stone of revelation, a new portion, a new part that's come to a new father, a new prophet, We can summarily dismiss them. We can say with assurance they are not speaking the truth. For with the son's arrival, all other portions are finished. We now have the completion of them through the son. That's the writer saying this is the verse you go to to dispute anyone who would claim that subsequent revelation appeared to men following Christ's appearance. He is the final revelation. And notice also the writer says this preeminence extends all the way back to the beginning Hebrews tells us in verse 2 that Jesus is the one who made the world. Now, why is he referencing that at this point? How does his statement that the new revelation in Christ is better than the old, or is the culmination of the old, I should say, 
Why did that necessitate getting into the conversation of creation? Well, what does Genesis teach us about the creation process itself? How was it done? Well, if you remember, it's done through the spoken word. God said, let there be light. God said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, the word, the creator, Christ, spoke everything that is in existence. That's why John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that came into being. That's why John chooses to call Christ by that title, the Word. Why use such an obscure title for Christ, the Word? John says, the Word created all things. He's referencing the fact that in Genesis, there was a creative process instituted by the speaking of a word. In John 4, we're told that God the Father is all spirit. The Father has no substance, no physical substance. And therefore, you and I in the creation, as part of the creation, we cannot experience the Father as he truly is because we are bound to a physical dimension and yet the Father is not physical. We have no way to appreciate something that is not physical. Secondly, we know elsewhere in Scripture from John 3 that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is likewise invisible. So the Spirit can only be known by observing His work in creation. And John said all things have been made by and through Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews now affirms that, saying that He is the creator of all things. Notice then the writer says Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. How do you see the sun? How can you perceive it in the sky? You know you're not actually seeing the sun. You're seeing the radiance of the sun. You're seeing beams of light that have traveled 93 million miles and arrived here. The sun is 93 million miles away. You're seeing the beams that emanate from it. You're seeing rays of light. And so you know of the sun's existence and its brightness because something that emanates from it came to where you are so that you could perceive it from a distance. Likewise, the Son of God is the radiance of the Father's glory. In a very real sense, the Son of God is the light emitted from the Father. John calls Jesus the light of the world. So the world can know the Father and perceive his glory by looking at the Son, who is the radiance of the Father into the world. And then he says Christ is the exact representation of the Father's nature. The Greek word translated here, exact representation, it's the same word for character, someone's character. It can also be used, though, to describe the impression that's made on a coin. When they stamp the face of the emperor on the coin, the word in Greek for that is the same word being used here for exact representation. So what the writer is saying is Jesus is the exact replica of the character of God. And Jesus came into creation so that we would know that about the father. In John 14, Jesus says this, if you have known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Paul echoes this also, by the way, in, in the first chapter of Colossians. So the only person in the Godhead who's ever entered into and become a part of the physical creation is the second person, Jesus. So when God the Father determined to reveal himself to a creation through his son, he began that revelation with his son as the creator speaking the world into existence. After he made the world by speaking, he became the logos of God, the word of God, the revelation to men throughout history concerning the creator. 
That came in many parts. It came progressively. We learn more and more about our creator. Ultimately, he appeared incarnate, giving substance to the word and fulfilling what is foretold. That's why we say the Old Testament is just the New Testament predicted and the New Testament is the Old Testament. Here's how you can understand, at least to a degree. I want to draw an analogy to how we communicate or reveal our thoughts to a physical world. When you desire to share something of yourself to the world, you first have to conceive that as a thought in your mind. No one can see your thoughts, though. They're invisible, but they certainly exist, because without a thought, you could not plan to do anything. But if you want to reveal that invisible part of who you are, the thinking that's in your head, you have to find a way to transfer that invisible thought into the physical realm, somehow. And it has to be done so in a way that others can perceive it and receive and understand it. The brain communicates that thought to your mouth. Your mouth is then directed to make sound. And what was previously invisible thought becomes spoken language. Sound waves moving through the air. Once it leaves your mouth, it has its intended effect when it reaches someone else's ear. That revelation of your thought transfers from you something that could not have been seen otherwise to the next person. But even then, that's an imperfect transfer. We all know about problems with communication, right? It's imperfect. I made an attempt to transfer something about who I am and what I think. I used words to do it. Some of them stuck. Some of them didn't. Maybe you get a partial understanding. But what if it were possible for me to take all of my thoughts and my character, everything that is inner and invisible, and actually create something or someone who was a perfect representation of everything that's going on in my brain? Make it incarnate. Something that could make me fully known through what that person did. That's what God the Father did working through his son in a sense. He revealed himself to his creation. But even more than that, he made the creation through his son's spoken word. So that even our existence was a thought transferred to word, transferred into power and action. Later it became him incarnate in that creation, representing himself to the world in that perfect way. What the writer has done as he starts this letter is introduce us to this contrast that God the Father, in his desire to make himself known, has given us things in the past which do not suffice to fully communicate who he is, but they lead us somewhere helpful. But if you really want to know who God is in his fullness, you have to know him as he's fully revealed himself, and that comes only in the, in the Son. Those who you may know, I know a few in the church, who, though they are believers, have an unhealthy interest In the Old, in the Old Testament, in Jewish culture, in Jewish practices, in Jewish lifestyle, they have taken it upon themselves to live under those constraints and try to even follow the law if it were possible, thinking that they're moving closer to God by adopting the portions and the parts that were given in earlier times to earlier men. But the irony is they're moving exactly backwards. For those earlier things had a point. They were pointing forward to where their fulfillment comes in Christ. What we are to do is understand those things as they point to Christ and enjoy what God has given in the full revelation of his son. With that introduction, next week when we come back, we're going to get into the various arguments the writer makes, starting with the first one in this chapter on angels. Next week's all about angels. As the writer begins to pry loose this Jewish culture's mindset from the old so that their hands are free to grasp the new in its full and proper way, to live in the full revelation of Christ. And next week it's with regard to angels because they were the messengers of the old, but Christ is a superior messenger 
in the case of the new. Let me end in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the the beginning of this letter. It is a maturing letter, Father. It is one in which theology takes takes us through some difficult conversation. But, Father, at the outset, we know we have work to do and we have a blessing if we put in the time. I pray, Father, that what we'll come to as we study this letter will cause us to think differently about who you are and what you did to bring us into a full knowledge of yourself, that it will challenge us in our walk, give us cause, Father, to consider uh, the coming judgment and to be ready for all that it requires. Thank you, Lord, for this study. Bring us to its conclusion in the proper day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.